You know, I was thinking this week that there are certain things in this world that are dangerous when they're brought together. Texting and driving. Fires in our drought-dried forests. My wife, Carolyn, and Hobby Lobby. (laughs) I'm going to get in trouble for that later, but it was worth it. But I recently saw an example of two things that could be dangerous when combined that really made me scratch my head. About a month ago, my family and I went up to Flagstaff, and as a side trip, we wanted to go to a rock shop in Cottonwood for Evan to check out some rocks. And along the way, we passed the county jail on the left. And you know what we saw? Just a short walk away from the county jail between the jail and the road. It was a gun shop, and and not just a gun shop. They had a big banner on it that said, Machine Gun Rental. (laughs) Right next to the jail. I'm thinking, how how did this get cleared by the the city manager? Seriously, like, do do they also have a trade-in Tuesday for an orange jumper and a pair of handcuffs? You can choose the outfit of your choice. (laughs) Not, Not a great combination. (laughs) Peter is going to warn us about a very grave and serious deadly combination this morning. New or unstable believers combined with false teachers within the church. The beginning of the chapter last week, Paul read chapter 2 verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And it wasn't just Peter. Paul, when he met the elders of Ephesus on the beach in Acts chapter 20, verse 29 said, I know after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Last week, Paul broke down what to look for in their teaching. Just a couple quick review points. If someone brings something different than what God has said, that's a red flag. If someone brings something new that that goes beyond what God has said, that's a red flag. If if someone predicts something that does not come to pass, that's a red flag. If someone predicts something that does come to pass, but they lead you to worship a God other than the God of the Bible, that's a red flag. That was their teaching. This week, Peter focuses a bit more on their behavior. Last week it was the talk. This week, it's the walk. We're supposed to look at the walk of those who have spiritual influence in our lives. Jesus endorsed this process, right? Matthew 15, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their... Fruits. Now, obviously, we need to put an asterisk on here. We are not looking for perfect leaders in this world. Uh, The next time you're going to see a perfect teacher is when you meet Jesus face to face. Right? And that includes this church. What he's talking about is the overall thrust of a life. And I thought about it like this. There's a difference between the person who who's speeding through downtown and and hits a pedestrian in the crosswalk and and stops and sees the broken leg that they've caused and and, and grieves and and commits to, to driving more safely. There's a difference between that person and the person who hits someone in the crosswalk, hits the gas and goes faster looking for the next crosswalk with another pedestrian in it. You understand what I'm saying? He's talking about a lifestyle that we need to be aware of 
in those who have spiritual influence over us. These teachers that Peter is warning against were hitting the gas in their sinful lifestyles. You know how I know that? Verse 13 says they, they revel in their deceptions. They, they're living it up in their sin and their lies. They're going full speed ahead. So this morning, I want to walk you through a few things. First, I want to walk you through their routine. What, what are the behaviors that characterize their lives to watch out for? What are the results of that behavior within the church? I want to talk about their responsibility before God. I want to share the reason behind it all. And I want to close with maybe the most practical part for us to carry out of here. Our reinforcement against it, okay? But I want to start with the routine of these false teachers. One thing that's part of who they are and how they act, they have a careless arrogance towards spiritual realities. A careless arrogance towards spiritual realities. Verse 10 describes them as those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But he says, and despise authority. In essence, when I think of these guys, I envision their lives as one ongoing middle finger raised against authority. They despise authority. They are proud. They are obstinate in going after their own way, even when it means going against authority. The worst part of their despising authority comes in verse 1. It says, They deny the master who bought them. Who's that? Who is their master? Jesus. Right. Now, does this mean that they denied He existed? Probably not. Probably not. We see this much today. Many people take parts of Jesus that they like. He's, he was a good teacher. Sometimes what we run into in the church is we stop at Jesus is a loving Savior, and that is essential to our faith, right? Without what happened at the cross, there is no forgiveness, there is no grace. But sometimes we fail to go on. He's not only Savior, the New Testament picture is that He is the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Lord has a very spiritual tone to it for us who grew up in the church, but when the New Testament church heard the word Lord, you know what they heard? Master, when He says go, I go. When He says stop, I stop. There is no debate. He is my Master. Many times that is left aside in our preaching, in our teaching, in our walks. Why is that? I think sometimes in our world, people envision Jesus almost is like a religious Pokemon card that I'm going to add to all the rest of my religious Pokemon cards. I, I like this part of Jesus, so I'm going to add my Jesus card to my, my Buddhism card and my philosophy card. And here's the trouble. Jesus is not interested in being part of our collections. Jesus is the collection according to the Bible. It is in Him that all God's promises are yes. He told His disciples, I came to reveal the Father to you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father apart from Me. He's not interested in being part of our collections. We also live in a world where we can customize everything. You can go to GoDaddy and customize a website. You can customize a car before you buy it. You can customize a house before we buy it. And some of us come to Jesus with that mindset. I'm going to customize Him. I'm going to read this and take the parts I like, take the things He said that I agree with, but I'm going to leave out the parts that I don't like. Here's the problem. The biblical picture is we are not to customize Jesus he is to customize us according to His liking to shape us into His image. 
have careless arrogance towards spiritual reality, starting with the Lord, but it, it goes beyond that, verse 10, to other spiritual realities. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Now, if you flip over to Jude sometime this week and read the parallel passage, it'll help you understand what I believe he's talking about here. He's talking about, they, they blaspheme the glorious ones. He's talking about demons. Why do I believe that? Because it says, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Also in Jude, it talks about the angel Michael wrestling with the devil over Moses' body. And it says he did not, I'm going to paraphrase, he didn't take things into his own hands and blaspheme the devil. He said, the Lord rebuke you. So even the, the angels do not have this arrogance towards the demons, though they're greater in power. But these teachers were arrogant towards the power of the demonic realm. What does that look like? I mean, that's kind of a nebulous idea, right? I just want to share one possibility that I read about that resonated when you look at their lifestyle. I think one way they may have downplayed the power of demons is downplaying the effect of demonic influence in our lives when we engage in willful sin. When we choose to engage in willful sin, we give access to the demonic realm to, at the very least, oppress us in our lives. We say, come on in. I think they downplayed that. James talked about not having an arrogance in the spiritual battle. James 4.7. He says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Line yourself up with Him in your ways. Then resist the devil and he will flee from you. Don't approach the battle arrogantly. Approach it humbly before God and in obedience to Him. But it's not only this careless arrogance towards spiritual realities. They also had a calculated ignorance of the truth. Verse 12. These like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. They're acting on instinct. And when I read that, that part about animals born to be caught and destroyed, I can't help but think about the gophers that tear up my backyard. It's a never-ending battle, okay? And I, I actually found out something from my friend Todd. They, they have something called the gophernator now. It connects a propane tank to underground pipes underneath your yard. And anytime you sense there are gophers around, you flip a switch, hit a spark, Quick and painless, and it's over. <laughs> Animals <laughs> born to be caught and de destroyed. This is strong language from, from Peter, right? He goes on to say, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. Now, you remember I called this calculated ignorance of the truth. Why did I call it that? Because we hear ignorance and we think, oh, somebody just didn't know. But often in the Bible, ignorance is a willful thing. People don't know because they don't want to know. We see this in, in Romans 1, 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They, they push the truth down. Because they don't want to hear it. Ephesians 4.18, Paul says they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They're ignorant because they want to be ignorant in many cases. He says they will be destroyed in their destruction Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They have a calculated ignorance of the truth of God's word. The final thing I want to share about their, their routine is they practice carnivorous lust in their lives, like predators. And they rationalize it. 
Look at this. Verse 10 had already said, those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. Verse 13 says, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Look, even the pagans had certain things that they said, if you're going to do that, do it at night. To do it in the daytime is shameful. These guys were done hiding their sin. They were out in the daytime and proud of it, and they wanted everybody to know it. They reveled in the daytime in their sin. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. And if you look over at Jude, he refers to the love feast of the early church. They would have a feast and they would share that bread and that wine and remember the Lord's death. These guys were showing up to that feast even with carnivorous lust on their mind. You, you read about that kind of sin rationalized in the daytime and, and you wonder what kind of thought process leads to that. Well, when you're reading a book of the Bible, it's always good to pull out and look at the whole book to get some context. Later on in chapter 3, Peter, in verse 15, talks about the Apostle Paul's writings. He says, Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Now, how many of you would relate to this next statement when you read Paul? He says, There are some things in them that are hard to understand. <laughs> yes, even Peter admitted that. But then he went on to the warning part. There are things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. There were things in Paul's scriptures already being twisted. I believe it's quite possible that one of the things these teachers were twisting is, was exactly what Paul dealt with in Romans 6. This idea that we're covered in God's grace. And because of that, it doesn't matter what I do. Hey, if His grace covers it, then let's sin that grace might abound all the more. What did Paul say to that twisted line of thinking in Romans 6.1? He said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? When I look at their lifestyles, I can't help but wonder, was, was that one of the things they were twisting that, that led them to this lifestyle? Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery. The Greek literally says eyes full of adulterous women. It's as though these teachers saw every woman as a prey for their taking. Insatiable for sin. They, they could not... Get enough. Verse 14, they entice unsteady souls. Entice is a hunting or fishing term. Peter was a fisher. May have used the term in his career. It's this idea of luring these women and others into their sinful sphere. What's going on here? Instead of loving people, they're, they're using their, their spiritual influence to prey on them. To prey on the people of God. You don't have to look far to see examples of this today. Just a couple days ago in the news, and I won't go into the details, but there was a Catholic parish in Louisiana. Someone saw the lights on late at night, took a video camera to the door, and without being graphic, there was an illicit act on the altar in the church between a priest and two women. So grievous that the archbishop said, we're going to burn that altar down. It's not only the Catholic Church. You sometimes hear of counseling situations in the, the Protestant Church where a pastor unwisely sits with a woman in her pain and they connect emotionally and then off they go into worse things. God hates it when people use their position of spiritual influence to prey on people rather than love them. But what happens when people start to live this way, it starts to affect their teaching, and they begin to teach that to others, and it spreads. Five, six years ago, there was a, a book that was really powerful about love for the lost. It was so good, we said, hey, we want some of our small groups to go through this book because it really had a great heart for loving the lost. But then a couple years later, one of the authors of that book 
started posting things on Facebook and Twitter, making bold statements such as, we in the church need to get behind the idea of more homosexuals in leadership in the church. Shortly after that, we, we saw another post where they shared that the daughter of the authors had, had come out as homosexual in her lifestyle. And these two authors proclaimed not only their love for her, which is right, we should love those in sin, but their support of her lifestyle and how proud they were that she took that stand in her life. And I can't help but wonder what came first. Did they twist the Scriptures first and then their daughter went into that lifestyle or was it the other way around? Their daughter started expressing that interest and then they twisted the Scriptures to fit it because who of us as a parent couldn't understand that temptation? When it's somebody in our lives that we see struggling in a sin, we want so badly to stand with them. And yet, biblical love never departs from the truth. I don't bring that particular issue up because that's the only sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I bring it up as a warning to ask us, are there any areas in my life where I twist the Scriptures to, to fit my preferred sin? To kind of wash it away. Maybe Scriptures I avoid to allow it to keep going. Or are there any experiences in my life that shape my understanding of the word rather than the other way around. These are, are dangerous realities. And they weren't just insatiable for, for sex. Verse 14 says they have hearts trained in greed. The word trained is from the word we get gymnasium from. They worked at their greed. Something they practiced over the days and weeks and years and they got good at it. They were greedy and they worked at it. He says in verse 14, accursed children. Peter feels so strongly. God feels so strongly about what's going on here. He gives an example from the Old Testament. Verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Long before Shrek, <laughs> Balaam in the Old Testament had a, a talking donkey. Do you guys remember the story? I'd encourage you to read it this week. Numbers 22 through 24. The story's in there. Basically, there's this king of Moab, Balak who sees the tribes of Israel camp nearby, and he's scared. And so he hires Balaam to come put a curse on these people. He offers him great wealth. And Balaam starts out saying the right thing. He says, I can only say what God tells me to say. But evidently his heart was torn between what God would say and this greed because he kept going back. There's the tug of war. He's human. Anybody else human in here? Eventually God said, go... But evidently, Balaam's heart was not right as he went because God sent an angel to stand in the road with a sword. Only Balaam didn't see it. But his donkey did. So at first, his donkey goes off the road. Balaam beats it. Smashed his foot into a wall. Then it just laid down and Balaam beats the donkey some more. He kept striking the donkey until finally, Numbers 22, 28, as the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me. Now I love that Balaam just answers. <laughs> because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you've ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And Balaam said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you. Because your way is perverse. 
before me. The import of it, when you read it, is that the donkey was wiser than the dummy on his back. Right? Who kept pushing the envelope because of his greed. Now, as you follow the story, Balaam was not dumb enough to curse Israel after this. He, he laid off on that. But what you find is a couple chapters later, in 25, he, he used another approach. 25.1 says, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. They were led into false worship and sexual relationships with pagans. You say, what's that have to do with Balaam? Chapter 31 says Balaam was killed by God's people at God's command because they did that. Those pagan people lured Israel in on Balaam's advice. There's great warning here. If the enemy doesn't get us one way, be prepared. There may be a plan B and a plan C. So Balaam serves as a great picture of these false teachers in, in greed and sexual sin. And he's saying to this church he loves so much, beware. Now he's going to tell them the results of false teachers in the church. The first one is disappointed followers. Look, look at verse 17. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. The false teachers are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. Waterless spring? Imagine you're out hiking in the desert near Phoenix and, and you hear there's a spring five miles ahead and you have no water and that's your only hope and you get there and there's no water. Talk about the letdown. Okay, mist driven by a storm. This could mean one of two things, that, that these guys just come and go. There's no faithfulness. They're all, they just come and go. Or, as we've seen recently, you see a mist in the air and you hope it rains because we need it, but then it just fades away. Both pictures are pictures of disappointment in those who turn to them. And that's where false teaching ultimately leaves its followers. Jeremiah told his people about this. Jeremiah 2.13, for my, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Can you hear God's heart there? You have a fountain of fresh and living water in me. Why are you looking elsewhere? Disappointed followers. Second result is the damnation of God upon these false teachers. Verse 17 says, For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. I'll come back to that a little bit later in this message. But you also see a diversion of people in the church into the wrong way. Verse 18, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice, there's that lure word again, by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They, they look for the vulnerable, pick them off and, and lead them into the way of error. I'm going to paraphrase one man who said, fancy words are the hook, filthy lust is the worm. Just because somebody speaks fancy words does not mean they're a man or woman of God. Lastly, they have a denial of their own slavery to sin. These people, verse 19, they promise them freedom, but they themselves, the teachers themselves, are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. Kenneth Gangle said these teachers only work on the naive who don't know their Bible because they're really like a 300-pound man selling a diet book. Anyone with eyes of discernment can see they're slaves of their own corruption. Why would I follow them when they talk about freedom? But the naive are often led astray by words. 
Michael Green said this, no man can serve two masters. Jesus made that plain. But every man must serve one. The question is not, will I serve a master? It's what kind of master do I want? Do I want a master who keeps his promises and brings life and fulfillment forever? Or do I want a master who leads me astray and breaks his promises and leads me to emptiness and brokenness and eternal damnation? You see, it's Jesus or it's sin. You say, I'm my own master. That's not an option. If Jesus ain't your master, sin is your master. You must choose Jesus today. I want to talk to you about their responsibility before God. Verse 20, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What does this mean? It means whenever we open our Bible or hear it preached faithfully, it is a blessing to hear the Word of God, okay? But it also brings great accountability and responsibility before God. Jesus preached this while He was on earth. Matthew 11.21, He looked at cities where He had done His miracles. Cities that had seen Him in person and yet still largely rejected Him. He looked at them in Matthew 11.21 and He said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon long ago, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. What is he saying? We have great accountability for what we've been exposed to. The more truth of God's word, the more we've seen of the reality, the more we are accountable before him. And when he says it will be more bearable on the day of judgment, I believe along with many other scholars that just like there are different rewards in heaven, there are different punishments in hell at least partially based on our accountability before God. So if you sit here week after week and hear about salvation in Jesus Christ, if you read your Bible and hear Him say that God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. I urge you, do not leave today without surrendering to that in repentance and faith. For every time you hear it, you become more accountable. But this could be the time you embrace it and are set free. Luke 12, 48 says, To whom much was given, of him much will be required. I want to share lastly what I believe is the, the root of it all for these teachers. I believe that at least some of these false teachers that Peter was dealing with were unsaved. When you read verse 22, it says that what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Dog was not a favorable thing in this day. I know, I know they are today. I saw a guy with a dog in a backpack on an electric scooter the other day. A little chihuahua. I'm like, man, dogs are loved today. They got it good. Dogs were looked down on by the Jewish people. They saw them as food stealers who sometimes preyed on weak people and traveled in packs. Same with pigs. God had called them unclean in the Old Testament. And the, the picture I see here, the dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. That dog feels better for a while, but he eventually 
follows his true nature and goes back and eats that same vomit because that's who he is. You can give a pig a bath, hose him off, but a pig's going to go back to the mud because that's what pigs do. It's their nature. I believe many of these false teachers looked fabulous on the outside, but they had not been inwardly regenerated by the Spirit of God. I also believe that because of a couple other verses in here. Chapter 2, verse 17 says, For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. And earlier in the chapter when Peter spoke of darkness, chapter 2, verse 4 he said, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. He also says in chapter 2, verse 3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Romans 8, 1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 John 2.19 speaks of false teachers. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Can there be Christians who are false teachers in the church? Yes. But I believe as Peter speaks here, he's speaking of the, the unsaved. So you hear all that and say, Wow. How do we reinforce ourselves against this? Well, we called our series Building Up the Believers. Right? That was a passion of Peter's. Ever since the Lord told him that after he turned, he would strengthen his brothers. Peter was a man who knew what it was to fall and be restored by God's grace. He had a passion for building up the church. So in chapter 2, what I see him doing is, is spraying for termites. Right? But... But in chapters 1 and 3, I see him helping the believers build a brick house. Okay, because that's another approach. Best, best defense is what? Good a, a good offense. And you see his heart. He wants these believers to be stable so they can fend off these false teachers. One twelve, he had said, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. He's building that brick house, reminding them of what's true over and over and over. Chapter 3, verse 17, later on he tells them, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. I think of Paul's illustration from last week of the two vectors if you were here, there's the way of truth and there's the way of falsehood. And though it looks close at the beginning, the further you go down there, the, the further you get away from the truth. That was a beautiful picture. And I'm thinking about that crossroads. If you're at that crossroads and you know this vector is going off, the best thing to do is not stand at the crossroads and stare at the wrong way and say, don't go down there, don't go down there, don't go down there. I shouldn't go down there. What's the best thing to do? To go down the right way. Right? Leave the crossroads behind and start marching the right path. And that's what I see Peter doing in the rest of this book. Thomas Constable, to paraphrase him, he, called, he said this book is like a bologna sandwich. Chapters 1 and 3 are the good bread that we're supposed to eat up. And chapter 2 warns us about the bologna that the false teachers bring. So I look back to chapter 1 to look for our reinforcement. How do we build this brick house? And he tells us about the power of God that the believer has within us. I, the promises of God that we have in here and that we partake of the divine nature. The Holy Spirit lives inside of the believer. And then he tells us in chapter 1 to make every effort to supplement, to add to our faith and then he goes on to, to list seven things. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we already did chapter 1, but one thing that struck me, these seven things that we are called to add to our faith by cooperation with the Holy Spirit are exact opposites of how these false teachers behaved. I want to show you what I'm talking about. The first thing in chapter 1 he said to add was virtue. 
You remember that word means excellence. When a thing or person fulfills its given purpose. A virtuous field produces a lot of good crops. A virtuous car drives well. It's excellent. Did these guys fulfill their purpose? Oh, 17 said they're waterless springs. They totally missed their purpose. They're missed, driven by a storm. They, verse 19, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Is that our purpose, to be slaves of corruption? No. So you say, what is the purpose? To reflect the image of Jesus Christ. We're predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. In other words, you see how we're eventually going to be like Jesus, so why not start cooperating now? Let Him work that image in us today. You say, how in the world do I do that? Uh, you don't. <laughs> Not on your own. First Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Have you received that by faith? And if you have, here's the thing every day in our behavior, we got to know it up here. We got to reckon it to be true. Yeah, I'm dead to sin and alive to righteousness because of Christ. And then we got to yield to it and allow the Holy Spirit to work it out in our lives as we cooperate. That's virtue, knowledge. These people were ignorant because they chose to be ignorant. Verse 12 blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. You say, why do false teachers get an audience, and often such a large one? Because there are many people in the world that also do not want the truth. Paul warned about it, 2 Timothy 4.2. He said, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. By having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. False teachers only get an audience because there's a lot of people that don't want the truth. So what does Peter do in, in chapter 1? He reminded the people of the eyewitness accounts of the apostles, right? And the word of the prophets. Verse 16 in chapter 1, he said, We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Peter, James, and John on that mountain. Verse 21, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Peter, he talked about this as pure milk. 1 Peter 2.2, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you've ever had a newborn, you know that longing is not casual. <laughs> they don't stop until they get it, right? Do we have that kind of longing for the word of the apostles and prophets? Let's ask the question, do, do I twist the Scripture to rationalize my sin? Do I avoid the parts that challenge my, my lifestyle? Do I surround myself with teachers and friends that rubber stamp my, my sinful decisions? Or do I long for and dig into the truth of God's Word and submit myself before the Lord Jesus Christ? Self-control. Verse 10 described them as those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. 13, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They have eyes full of adultery. They have hearts trained in greed. They are the opposite of self-control. I think about hearts trained in greed and all the work that that takes and 
I just, I just thought about it like this. There's nothing wrong with doing what we have to do financially, okay? That's part of life on this planet. It's not wrong to prepare for retirement, make financial decisions, but, but what hit me is if the names of Edward Jones, Charles Schwab, and J.P. Morgan cross my mind and heart more than the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do, I've got an idol problem. They were trained in, in greed, and I think part of it was they totally missed the precious one they were redeemed with. Peter described him in 1 Peter 1.18, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So instead of training in greed, how's about we do what Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.7. He said, train yourself in godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The ultimate investment. <laughs> I think part of the reason they lack self-control in these areas, whether it's sexual or greed, like most people, they're trying to fill a hole, right? And they had not filled it with Jesus Christ, the only one that can satisfy our deepest needs. You remember what he said to the Samaritan woman, John 4, 13. He said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Steadfastness. These, these men were not steadfast. Verse 15 says they forsaking the right way. They didn't stay on course. They left the right way. They've gone astray. Verse 21, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And listen, I, I read that and think of Balaam going the wrong way and all that situation with Israel, and I think about how God in His grace protected Israel from a, a potential curse that they knew nothing about. But then later on, how tragic it is that God had been faithful to them, but in their unfaithfulness to Him, they rolled out a welcome mat for sexual sin and idolatry and the plague that followed. And I thought about that. I thought, man, God has given us everything we need to protect ourselves in the Christian life. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the Word. He's given us a church of believers to walk with. But listen, if we roll out the welcome mat to sin and say, come on in, it's on us. It is on us. Let us not be a people who do that. 1 Corinthians 6.12 Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Look to Him for the way out and His strength. I'd also say make sure you're not walking alone. God created the church because we need fellowship. And when you read the book of Ephesians and you get to chapter 4 and he talks about leaders who equip the saints for ministry, it's, it's for a purpose that everyone would grow into maturity. And then listen, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. So people ask you, do you have to be part of a church to have a relationship with God? No. Do you have to be part of a church to follow Him in obedience and stay faithful? Yes. 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 He is Lord. Do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. Godliness. Are these men godly? He said in verse 13, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Blots and blemishes comes up in chapter 3. And I, I think another false teaching these men may have been a part of was denying the Lord's return. 
Why do I say that? Because in chapter 3, Peter warns about such people. Chapter 3, verse 3 says, Knowing first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they'll say, where's the promise of his coming? Then he goes on to talk about the reality of the coming. And he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, this planet, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Verse 14, he says, Beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. You see, you take away the Lord's return and the fact that every believer is going to stand before him to give account for their faithfulness, you remove a lot of motivation for holiness. But if you believe that day's coming, yes, you're ultimately motivated by the love, but that return and Judgment for accountability, not for salvation, but for faithfulness. That's a, an important motivator. He said in 1 Peter 1.15, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Michael Green said, Christianity is inescapably ethical. You cannot have relationship with a good God without becoming a better man. Final one, brotherly affection and love. I'll put it together. Did these people love the people in God's church? No, they were targets. Pray. They, they entice unsteady souls. Contrast that with what Paul told Timothy at the church at Ephesus, 1 Timothy 5. One, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. In all purity. He says, Timothy, treat those women in the church as though they were your very own sisters. That's love. Precious brothers and sisters in Christ that Jesus died for. First Peter 4.8, he said, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And you know what he says after he gives all those seven things to add to our faith? Probably remember verse 8. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I like to say often, it's not enough to kill the weeds. You've got to fertilize the grass. So I see Peter doing here. Chapter 2, he's killing the weeds. But chapter 1 and 3, you've got to fertilize that grass. And last but not least, I want to share a story and a warning to you. I was hiking in a field behind our house recently, and I saw a little tarantula. I thought, wouldn't it be cool to get him on video and get a close-up picture? And I was wearing shorts and low-cut socks. and He let me get real close, and he stood real still, and I got in there and got a picture and a video, and I walked away, and I start walking, I feel some pain in my leg. I'm like, what's going on here? And I look, and there are two hairs sticking in my ankle with red around them. I pull them out, but for the next half hour, that leg burned, and I got on Google and Google tarantula hairs, and I found out about something I never knew about, uricating hairs. Well, I thought that tarantula was being nice and standing still so I could get a picture. I think that's when he did it. He shot hairs off of his butt right into my leg. And it hurt. <laughs> so don't get close. At least with bare legs. Next time you see a tarantula, keep a distance and walk away. Same thing. False teachers can often give an appearance of, hey, come on in. Very welcoming. I'll tell you what you want to hear. But you start hearing stuff that goes against the Word of God, speaks against what you know to be true, don't hang out. Run. 